0: A man was once on a cruise ship which went down, and he was the sole survivor, and he floated for several days before arriving on a stereotypical cartoonish desert island, and there he survived for some time. Against all odds, he drank coconut milk and ate berries and roots and this sort of thing, and every day he prayed that the Lord would send someone to rescue him. And one day, just that happened a a vessel pulled up on the island and someone hopped off and said are you stuck here he said yes you can bring me home and they looked at the island and they saw three huts and they said well are you alone or are there others here with you he said no I'm alone and they said well I gotta ask what's with the three huts he said well that one right there that's where I live That one in the middle, that's where I go to church. You see, I've been praying every day that I would be rescued. And so I thought it made sense for me to have kind of a church as well. You see, there's a cross at the top. And the captain of the boat said, okay, what's the third one? To which the man said, oh, that's that's where I used to go to church. That's not... What I love is that you've all heard that 38 times, and you're so polite, you chuckle as if you've never heard it before. And whenever I hear that classic story, I always think that guy was Baptist, right? That, that he could actually effectively carry out a church split with just one person. It's, it's sad. It's a sad reality. I, I remember, this will tell you a little bit about how much of a nerd I am. I was on baptistboard.com. Yeah, it's for Baptists, and it's you know, message board, Uh, some years ago, and someone began uh, kind of a a thread, tell me the craziest church split story, if you're a pastor or not a pastor that you've experienced or or know someone who experienced, and and all these things started coming out, and, and a lot of them were kind of funny, but even the funny ones, the longer it went, kind of the sadder the whole thing became. I remember the one that really got me was a church had split over fried chicken, there were two women who didn't like each other and slowly they kind of got uh, factions around them that, that supported one over the other. And one day they had a picnic and they both brought chicken and they both were proud of the chicken they had brought And both thought theirs was the best. And the pastor, not knowing that they had both brought chicken, went to one end of the table there, picked up a piece of chicken, bit into it, said, this is the best chicken I've ever eaten. Boom! The other woman, and that was the straw that that broke the camel's back. She took her people and they all left, started a church of the very same name one mile away. These are things that happen, sadly. I, I have a book in my study called Great Church Fights. It relates to a time when a church split over the deep and important theological issue of whether or not Adam and Eve had belly buttons. It, I mean, somebody, they, they did a little uh, mural in the, in the nursery, and Adam and Eve were there. At one point, the fig leaves were a little low, and there was the navel, and someone said, hold on, why would they have belly? And they got into this whole big, and, and it turned into something nasty, and, and they split. Well, we see in this passage here today that the tendency to fight with each other over issues that may or may not be important has been with us from the very beginning of the church. Now, we're still looking at this same event, more or less. Still in view is this sheet that came down from heaven with all kinds of animals on it. And God used that to say to Peter, what you think is unclean, I have said is clean. Arise, kill, and eat. It doesn't matter, you know, if it's wallaby or pig or lizard or whatever, it's clean. And then just then, men from Cornelius showed up. Cornelius was a Gentile. And God said, go with those guys. Go back to this man. Go to his house. Preach the gospel to him. And Peter did. And he, and he, of course, you heard the story as Valerie read it. He, he went and preached the gospel. He baptized them and they came to faith. Now, this story is actually told three times in the course of two chapters. We said maybe when the, the sheet came out of heaven and the vision repeated itself three times that, that maybe God was thinking Peter's a little bit thick-headed and I better do this more than once just like when I reinstated him I said Peter do you love me you know I love you feed my lambs Peter do you love me you know three times but then when the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke tells us the same story three times maybe that means we're a little thick-headed I don't know I mean you not me so much but what do you do when you read the same story for a third time and the vast majority of these 18 verses are a re-narration of something we've heard now uh, more than once, I think it might be a good time to ask the question, is there ever an occasion for dividing in the church? There seems to be people here pushing for a division, and Peter has to deal with this. There are those criticizing him. There's, There's the danger of a great division, a great schism, and the question must be asked, when would that be appropriate? When is it right for Christians to say we no longer have? Is it the chicken thing? Probably not. Is it the, the belly button thing? No, certainly not. But when should Christians find themselves divided? What should and should not divide us as believers? And, and looking at that question, you have to start with what God's plan, His ideal, what He finds His glory in, and that is when His people are unified. Going back even to the Psalms, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Psalm 133, 1. When brothers dwell in unity, how good and pleasant it is. We saw back in Acts 4, verse 32, that they were unified in the early church that they had unity, they were in one accord. Meaning they were all together with one purpose, one sense of what brought them together, and one mission that they wanted to accomplish. Jesus explicitly says that the one thing, the one defining characteristic by which the world will see that you're his people, that we belong to him, is that we love one another. And then in his prayer in John 17, he prays that we would be one, all of us christians in a way that can only otherwise be seen by looking at the trinity the way that the father the son and the holy spirit are one and of course jesus taught things like a house divided against itself cannot stand it will fall moving into the rest of the new testament saint paul will later rebuke the corinthian church we looked at first corinthians some time ago And he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And he asked the question, is Christ divided? If Christ is not divided, how can you, Christ's church, be divided? And yet, divisions in churches and divisions within the church at large, the church universal, are certainly a reality. And we see them threatening to pop up here in Acts chapter 11. Now notice that it's not everybody in Jerusalem who takes exception to what Peter has done. He doesn't come back home and the whole Christian community is waiting by his door with pitchforks and fists shaking and shouting him down. It's one small group. It's one group of people called the circumcision party which does not sound like a party I want to attend, but whatever the case, this is a group of people that are kind of single-issue lobbyists. They are concerned, first and foremost, that in the Church of Jesus Christ, we keep things kosher. That means that we remain unmixed with the Gentiles. That means, yes, salvation might be offered to everyone to the ends of the earth, but we're not about to go into their homes and break bread together Let's keep it separated. And you have to recognize, first of all, that this does come from a loyalty to a covenant sign that's given in the Old Testament. And secondly, that even more recently, there's history here. In the intertestamental period, that's the period 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, something happened. There was this emperor in Antiochus IV Epiphanes, bad guy. He's the one who brought a a pig into the temple and slaughtered it on the altar, desecrating the temple. That's what led up to the need for Hanukkah. Remember The, the rededication of the temple, the purifying of it. But he also outlawed circumcision. And so circumcision, this covenant symbol, was kind of elevated to confessional status. That if you are one of God's people, you will... Keep separate from those who are uncircumcised. And of course, we see that, I mean, even in the Old Testament, what does Saul say when he tells his armor bearer to kill him? He says, kill me so that no one will say one of these uncircumcised men did it. I'd rather die at the hand of one of my countrymen. This is a very significant thing. It even became, in that intertestamental period, more important to a certain group of people than the Sabbath. It was the all-important sign. And so they don't even object when they are criticizing Peter to Gentiles joining the church or being baptized Or receiving the gospel only to the fact that Paul went into their house and ate with them That's how important table fellowship is Read between the lines you see that that maybe their attitude is sure They can join the church. They can believe in Jesus. They can become followers of Christ As long as we have two completely separate groups under the umbrella of Christian. So that Christ has, in essence, two bodies. That's problematic. And never the two shall come into contact with one another. That's where the great enormous danger comes in here, and I don't think they could even see it in the moment. I don't even think Peter could see it in the moment. It's the kind of thing that takes some centuries and some hindsight. That there could have been such a a schism here, a thousand years before the great schism took place in the church. There could have been, at the very beginning, a split between a Jewish church and a Gentile church, and they could have moved out in incredibly different directions had God and his providence not kept that from happening. And it all began with some people criticizing. They began, some of the circumcision party, to criticize. Now, let me tell you some Greek. Don't, don't, uh, tune me out. It's easy. Uh, the, the Greek word at the core of this word "criticize" is krino. Say that with me. Krino. Krino means to judge, but not in like a bad way. It means to make a judgment, to make a decision. Some of you are going to ask others of you at the end of this service where you want to go for lunch. That's asking you to krino and make, it, make a decision there. So that's just the word to judge. Now, the, the thing that we're not to do as believers is not that we're not to judge. Jesus says, judge with righteous judgment. Rather, we're not to kata krino. Kata means down. It's very easy to see how kata krino would mean to judge someone down or to condemn them, to consign them downward, right? But this word is neither of those. It's dia krino. Dia means through. So they're judging through. It may not even be quite criticizing. It's, it's at its um, most lenient saying, let's discuss this and let's explore it together. And at its kind of most severe, it can often, often mean literally to withdraw from or to separate thoroughly from. But what these men do know, if they don't recognize that they're at the the cusp of possibly causing a great schism and changing the world forever, they do know, as they begin to criticize Peter, that they're angry, that they feel like their sense of the way things should be has been violated, and that they want to write it so that the bad feelings go away. Because things had never been done this way before. And in the church, from the very beginning... We've got to protect the way things have always been done. And so you and I sometimes feel the same sense, right? The way things should be has been violated. There's a change. There's something that that doesn't sit right. And and the way we've been programmed, I think, by by the culture and even by the church is to always lean into that and assume it's good. Push down that notion of disquiet. No, 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 no. Okay, yeah, yeah, change is good. Change is not always good. What you must ask and what they explore together here is the question of, is this worth splitting over? Is this worth dividing over? Is this worth splitting the church in two, tearing it asunder? Sometimes the answer is yes, if it's a big enough issue, if it's an important enough issue at hand, whether it's doctrinal or something else. But more often than not, the answer is no, not even close. This is not worth breaking fellowship over. There's such a great controversy here, and this sort of thing, to use a cliche, can tend to generate more heat than light, right? And and when they began to criticize Paul, the way he responded could have very much sent this in that direction. He could have generated a lot of heat, but instead he shines the light on it. He says, let me tell you what happened. He doesn't play the apostolic keys of the kingdom I'm the rock on whom the church is built, card. Although he could have. He he, he doesn't try to solve this with the force of his authority. He doesn't even really build a case or defend what he did. He just says, here's some light. Let me tell you what happened. And the six brothers that I brought with me who saw what happened can confirm for you this is exactly what happened. And let's diacrino this thing together. In fact, that word sometimes means to discern. Let's discern. You can discern whether what I did was right or not. He doesn't accuse. He doesn't say, how dare you stand in the way of what God is doing? No, he actually concludes by saying, how could I have stood in the way of what God was doing? He he relates to them what happened, brings them as much light as he has in this situation. And yes, in this case, it worked out well. But there are many other places in the Scripture where there is actually a command to separate The ideal is that we would be one and that we would all come around the same gospel that there would be one lord one faith one baptism we would all eat of the same bread and drink of the same cup but there are times in which the scriptures tell us in fact we're even commanded to separate from those who cause unnecessary divisions and separations that'll twist your mind separate from those who separate and those passages tell us first of all the seriousness of division in the church and secondly that sometimes it is necessary it's just not to be taken lightly look at titus 3 as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned or romans sixteen seventeen. i appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught avoid them for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So there's a sense in which those who like causing division should be avoided, should be separated from us. It, it, those who, who are like, oh, you know, I'd like nothing better than to write and read the blogs about who's a heretic and going to hell. It's a real temptation sometimes. Even for me. Oh, that's a good controversy. Let me, get, let me get my nose in that. Those who would want to go on social media just blast everybody. Oh, you're all so wrong and you're clearly not Christians. And oh, I kind of like this. Or hand out pamphlets somewhere saying this is why you've got, you've got completely on the wrong track. And even though you serve Jesus and you recognize the cross and, and the divinity of Christ and the second coming, we want to just turn the screws on the, the one area in which we differ. Now, there are two main situations in which the scriptures tell us to separate or divide. First of all, divide from those who persist in unrepentant sinful lifestyles. There are a number of different things that the scriptures say. Valerie read one of those passages for us. In 2 Thessalonians 3, it's those who continue to live in idleness or laziness. He will not work. He will not eat, Paul says. And in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, he writes, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. First corinthians 5 we read but now i am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater reviler drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one and you say wow that sounds an awful lot like these people who were criticizing peter what's the difference here well the difference is that these are calling themselves brothers and sisters in christ Well, continuing in sin. As Paul puts it, going on sinning that grace may abound. As Jude puts it, using the grace of God turned into lasciviousness or licentiousness to do whatever they want. In Revelation 2.20, Jesus says, I have this against you to the church. I believe in Theratira. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Those who would, by their example of unrepentant sin, lead others astray. We've been praying for people with cancer. Well, that's a cancer that has to be separated because of the damage that can be done to those who are new in the faith, to those who are weak in the faith. And many mainline denominations, including very many different congregations and areas within our own, seem to be racing with the world to see who can more quickly and more completely abandon a biblical view of holiness and sin. And years ago, when this began, people said, "Ah, careful, this, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. What's the end point? And we're told, come on, you're, you're talking about a slippery slope. That's not logical. That's not going to happen. You're paranoid, and yet it's continued to slip down the slope. I saw a clip of a gentleman preaching to a group of people about uh, the new sexual ethics in the church today a couple weeks ago, and this is what he said. For those of you who are in an open or polyamorous relationship, that's with more than two people of whatever combination of, of genders, Here this morning, you might be squirming because this is an uncomfortable question to hear in church. I want you to hear me loud and clear. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your relationships are holy. They are beautiful, and they are welcomed and celebrated in this space. It sounds an awful lot to me like that woman Jezebel in Revelation 2 that Jesus He was ready to remove that lamp from his presence, from their lampstand, because they tolerated this kind of teaching. Yes, Peter is told three times, do not call unclean what I have declared clean, but we must also not call clean what God has declared unclean. That's blasphemy. And St. Paul says, do not associate with such a one. There's also the other major heading here, and that is those who are teaching false doctrine or rejecting true doctrine. And, and this gets difficult because you say, where do you draw the line? Well, in the scriptures, I think it's fairly clear. In 2 John 1, 9, John is writing about uh, those who have rejected that Christ came in the flesh. They're teaching, he's not human. He was—he looked like human, but he wasn't really. And there was a false doctrine there that would rob the cross of its power. And he wrote, "Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works." Wow. That is, that is uncomfortable for me, not to greet him. In fact, we, we find that divisiveness doesn't primarily seem to come out of a faithful church defending biblical truth, but rather it comes from false doctrine and heresies and innovations. 1 Timothy 6, we read, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, and suspicions. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so the idea of those who would stray from the truth being the very same as those who would cause dissension and division is is something we find frequently in the scriptures. So where do we draw the line? Well, we want to protect the core of Christianity, the gospel. These things without which you don't have Christianity as something else. Those things that are laid out in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. These things that the the church has always held at the center of who we are. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance or utmost importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection And and as people try to determine where that line is, we have a tendency today to go to two extremes. Not to to deal with it, to even diacrino and discern, but rather to say I'm going to be either extreme on this side or extreme on this side. The first extreme is extreme separatism. It's everywhere, the idea that we're the only ones who've got it right and everyone else is on the outside. It's not the majority of believers today, but there are movements in which this is the general tenor. Uh, on, On one hand, we have calmed down a bit in this regard. 400 years ago, our view of baptism as being for believers would have gotten us drowned in parts of America. So it's good that things have calmed a bit, and yet today we divide over far less significant things than baptism. I think that this comes back to the idea that for centuries, the church in the West has experienced a great amount of privilege. That that, that the church has has been a place where you can go and experience advantage for being a Christian. You want to get ahead in the community? You better not deny the basic tenets of Christianity. Even if you don't believe them, keep it on the down low. You want to run for office? You better belong to a church. And it better be a good one that has all of its T's crossed and all of its I's dotted. And, And yet, because of that... It gave the church this sort of sad luxury of dividing over things that were far less important. This kind of idea of, well, we're all basically Christians, right? So let's segment ourselves into groups based on this or that secondary or tertiary doctrine. Or not even a doctrine, a practice or a cultural thing. We see almost a, a bell curve here, I think. In the beginning, Rome was persecuting the church and persecuting and killing. And Christians had to band together. They couldn't say, wait a minute, are, are you uh, American Baptist or Southern Baptist or what are you? No, they, they, they had to band together because the only thing that Rome saw them useful for was entertainment being torn apart in the arena or maybe to have their bodies burned in the streets as human street lamps. But then what happens is, Constantine gives the Edict of uh, Milan, the Edict of Toleration, which says, okay, now you're tolerated as Christians and you can practice. A scant 10 years later, Christianity becomes the official state religion of Rome, and suddenly it's of great advantage to be a Christian. Well, now we see in our time in the West the opposite having going from the advantage to being tolerated to more and more not being tolerated any longer, and still we continue to persist in dividing over things that are not important, that are not core doctrinal issues, turning against each other and, and condemning one another, kata krino. We don't have that luxury anymore, and it's probably a good thing. And when you look somewhere where Christians are being actually truly persecuted, China and the house church movement or many Muslim countries, there are, there are so many different secondary issues that they will not even bother with because the one thing that matters most is gathering together with believers so that the church will go on. Matt Chandler said that he, he, he put this in a, a very interesting way. He said, the church has two hands for theology. One of them is the closed hand and in it should be those things that are core to the faith. In the closed hand, you will not let go of these things. They're not negotiable, and if you're a Christian, you have to have them. That is, things like the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the substitutionary atonement that on the cross Jesus paid for our sins, his literal bodily resurrection, his literal bodily second coming. And then you have the open hand, and in that you hold more loosely all sorts of things. Things like, oh, I don't know, whether or not you believe in the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues or, or healing, things like uh, how you approach uh, complementarianism and egalitarianism and, and that sort of thing, and women in, in ministry, uh, church polity, uh, baptism, even things that aren't necessarily doctrinal but more cultural or, or otherwise historical, the age of the earth or, or what is the political makeup of this church or that church or even cultural practices and values. And Chandler suggested that as a result of being so overly comfortable for so many centuries, Christians began kind of walking around saying, well, let's divide over these things. I mean, they're out in the open, we can see them. And as they did that, many things that didn't belong in the closed hand sort of passed in there and became litmus tests for whether or not you are truly a believer. And once they're in the closed hand and they're clenched there, it's hard to let them out. And make them secondary once again. And so over time, we wind up focusing on these secondary things and tertiary things in a way that would separate and divide us. And Christ weeps because he prayed that we would be one. The other extreme is to have no separation at all, rather than extreme separatism. No separation means no holiness. You say, wait, what, where, how'd you get there? Because the word holy, kadosh in the, in the Hebrew, means to be separate. To be separate unto God. And so we're called to live. We're called out. Ecclesia means called out. I mean, we don't want to make too much of that, but that's the, the etymology of that word. And so when we hear people saying, well, you know, let's not separate. Let's not divide over anything. It starts like this. It starts like saying, well, this issue is not a salvation issue so don't worry about it. I don't know how that phrase entered the church's vocabulary. I hear myself using it. I hear it all the time. And it's gone from being perhaps helpful, saying, hold on, let's not divide over things that are way, way down the list in importance, to being, well, if it's not one of one or two or three, a dwindling number of core doctrines, forget about it. It's unimportant. That is certainly not the way that the Scriptures present things. If our Baptist forebearers were willing to be drowned, to be tortured or killed over their approach to baptism, which we believe is the biblical approach to baptism, maybe it is important, even though you can be saved and hold to a different view of baptism. The Scriptures speak in terms not of a few little salvation issues and then everything else doesn't matter, but rather core doctrines that are of utmost importance, and secondary doctrines that flow out of and into those that are also important. And tertiary matters that are less important. And finally, there's this category that we call adiaphora, which is disputable things or things indifferent. And only in that first category should we say, if we don't all have one mind about this, we separate And only in that last category should we say, eh, who cares, we'll just do whatever it takes to avoid conflict and make sure no one is offended. In the middle is this uncomfortable area where especially we as Baptists who recognize that that the church is a wide tent uncomfortably say, yeah, that is important, and yeah, we do differ on it, and we're not going to separate from one another. You're sprinkling babies, we're dunking adults. We will be in communion But perhaps we can't be in full communion. I'm not going to have you baptize our babies. You're not going to have us come in and teach on baptism in your churches. And yet we'll recognize each other as beloved brothers and sisters. Remember, the scriptures do warn of a great apostasy coming. 2 Thessalonians 2, a great falling away when many in the church will believe a strong delusion, if we really believe that's coming, we can't simply say, well, whatever it takes to make sure the church is at peace and everyone's happy. Because if we find ourselves in the midst of that great apostasy and we're saying, well, is everyone happy? We've found ourselves outside of Christ. In Revelation 18, We read this, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So there's a tension here, as there always is. Jesus said, whoever is not for me is against me. You might think someone else came up with that because you heard them say it on TV. It was Jesus. Whoever is not for me is against me. You can't not decide on Jesus. To not decide on Jesus is to decide against Jesus, to decide to rebel against him and to be at enmity with him. But he also said, whoever is not against us is for us. Amongst those who have made the decision, who have, who have decided I am with him, I am for him. I belong to Jesus, if they're not with us, following after us, doing everything just like us, it doesn't mean they're against us. They're for us, and we are to be for them. And again, it's uncomfortable. But remember, this is what Jesus prayed for when he knew this was the last couple hours leading up to when he would be arrested and beaten and killed. He prayed that we would be one, even as he is in the Father and we are in them. 1 Corinthians 12, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now look at the way that Peter, after he's told this story, redirects the attention of his uh, critics. Shifting the focus from the table fellowship, which is the thing that really made them angry, instead to the fact that these Gentiles had been saved He points to their salvation and highlights that because that's what's most important. As I began to speak, he says, The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Remember that wonderful day? And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He does not say to them, Listen, you're being old fashioned, times are changing, get on board. Okay, He doesn't appeal to progress in some generic way. No, he appeals to the words of Jesus. He doesn't say, listen, I know in my heart that it's right. He said, no, Jesus said this. The teaching of Christ says this. And therefore, we must submit to it. And so when they begin to see what he is is getting at, which is that they are now saved just as we are saved, they come around. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's always a gift. You have received the repentance by which you came to Christ as a gift. You received the faith that you placed in Christ as a gift. It doesn't find its origin in you. And you received the Holy Spirit as a gift. And therefore, when we look at others across whatever aisle, we see people who were saved by grace through faith, and we say we can be one. We can have unity. We can be of one accord, even if secondary things separate us. I love the quote from Peter Kreeft, Christ has a bride, not a harem. There is one church. Not 37,000 competing denominations, although we might be able to set ourselves up in that way. Christ sees one church, one bride. There's one body. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? In the King James it says that I could withstand God. I think the ESV is closer. That I would stand in God's way. That I would try and block him. Sub-question here, who are you that you would stand in God's way? And his critics understood immediately. And they praised God for what happened. Yes, there are times when core doctrines are being rejected and we have to make a separation. Yes, there are times when someone continues an unambiguous sin and it is a danger to the church and we have to make a separation. But it should always be with a broken heart. And it should be with an eye toward reconciliation down the road if God is at work. But anyone who's been granted repentance, walking the same path, holding to the same God, with them, we are called to be prodigal. You know what that word means? It doesn't mean that you walk away from your father, it means that you are lavish. The prodigal son's prodigal because when he got to that far land, he was throwing his money around, and everybody was drawn to him because he was just like, here, you get this. You get... He was like Oprah with the cars, remember that? And he was just giving everybody everything until he ran out. But we don't run out of grace in the church because we have an unending supply that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And those other beggars who found the bread, we are prodigal in the way we show them love and grace. And mercy, and there will always be those who oppose when we do this. William Booth, the man who started the Salvation Army, because he saw that the poor were being kept out of the life of the church, kept on the fringes, sit in the back. You can't afford to buy a pew in the front. And he said, I've got to start something new because the church is so strayed from the, the vision that the apostles had and that Jesus had. And yet, even as he tried to just include the poor and bring them the gospel and help them to better themselves there were rumors spread there were pamphlets passed around that said oh this guy's group is the antichrist and look here's how you add up the letters of his name and come up with 666 we have to give credit to those men here in Jerusalem who listened to Peter who were willing to say yeah we have some criticisms and concerns but yes tell us what happened and we will listen and we will consider, and we will discern, and we'll seek God's face together. They heard him out. They carefully weighed what he told them, and they rejoiced because they saw God was at work. They were swayed by Peter's response, but a much harder-hearted, much more unbending movement will come up behind it. We're going to see it in Acts 15. We're going to see it in the words of Galatians when we study that epistle. When Paul says, you have so abandoned the idea of grace that you've grabbed onto a different gospel. How can you do that? There will always be people who seem righteous, who we can join together with and use the Bible to condemn anyone who does not cross every T and dot every I the same way we do. And that will always be a temptation But let us remember that even in this moment where everything that these believers in the circumcision party held dear about their identity had been violated, they were given the grace of God. They were granted the repentance to say, we're in the wrong and God is at work. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this story of those who heard what God was doing and became angry. And Lord, each of us here is probably guilty of that at some point. We hold so close to our, our cultural uh, values. We hold so close the traditions of men. Lord, may we be ready to abandon all of those things in order to follow you when you are at work. We, we pray, Lord, that we would be people who would consider and listen and discern and want to know whether or not you're at work in a given situation. Not be quick to condemn or quick to separate, but loathe to separate. Lord, we pray that we would see the church as as we move from a time of being advantaged and privileged as Christians to being just barely tolerated and moving away even from that, that Lord, we would cling to one another all the more. That we would love one another all the more. We would be loath, hesitant beyond uh, hesitant to turn against each other over secondary or, or tertiary matters. That instead we would say, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Christ. One bride, not a harem, but a bride. And that, Lord, we would hold to each other, build each other up, and see revival come to this land. In your holy name we pray. Amen.